0: Exclusions apply. See site for details.
2: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this
0: week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Danny Ortiz. I would actually get the question, are you gay? And the thing was that 12-year-old Danny was very gay.
2: (laughs) That and more. But before that, if you're not a big fan... Of these advertisements that we have in the show. Well, guess what? You can get brand new episodes of Risk on the same day that they're put out there into the free feed, ad free, if you go to patreon.com, that's P A T R E O N dot com slash risk. And become a patron of ours for $10 a month or more. That is what will give you access to the ad-free episodes. Plus, you'll also get access to all our all-star episodes, our um, season one and season two remastered with ads taken out as well. Just a ton of amazing bonus content there on the site. You can give other amounts there at Patreon as well. You can give as little as $1 a month if you'd like. But go to patreon.com slash risk and become a member, check out the various perks and prizes for the various amounts you can give, and please help keep risk running that way. Also, I'm so excited to tell you about omgs.com. omgs.com is a sex research website that conducted the first ever scientific studies of what feels good for women and why, and turned the findings into fun honest videos. It's like going to a friend's party where the theme is, (laughs) here's exactly how I like to have my clit touched. But it's not weird. Women explain and show it to you on their bodies, but it feels very normal. It's very intimate, very friendly. They're sharing insights about clits as comfortably as they'd share recipes. Like, here's one surprising finding from the research. One in five women, prefer their outer lips squeezed together around the clit like a sandwich, a clit sandwich. It's a thing. So, hooray for science. <laughs> On omg.yes.com, women, men and couples get more understanding, more pleasure and tools to make a great thing even better. And Risk listeners get a discount when you go to omgyes.com slash risk. It's a one-time payment of $35 for permanent access to the first season of 62 videos plus interactive touchable simulations. That's omgyes.com slash risk. Now here's the show. Whoa, whoa! (laughs)
3: <laughs>
2: Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Winton Marsalis behind me now. Well, it's his whole big band there at Jazz at Lincoln Center. I don't know the name of this record. It's just those guys. You know those guys. Get hip to the jive. Now, we're calling this week's episode Connection. These are three stories of breakthroughs or breakdowns in connections (laughs) between people. And I'll tell you something. I had the most extraordinary weekend because there's this particular project I can't quite talk about yet. It involves me having to listen to every episode of Risk going back all the way back to the beginning. So I've had this incredibly emotional, incredibly emotional review of these 350 plus episodes. I, I'll tell you one thing. I am just so struck by how amazing it was right at the beginning, how solid it has stayed all along. And another thing that I was really moved to see was, well, I kind of missed something about the old show. You know, back in the old days, before we had an official theme song, we would invite musicians to create little 30-second or less songs, original songs that either included the word risk or played with the concept of risking it to, you know, revealing parts of yourself in a risky way. I think we should do that again. I think we should have people send in little original ditties again. Another thing we used to do, we used to have people send, you know, the interstitials that we have sometimes between the stories. Those sound collages with clips of found footage or just mashing up bits of audio. Uh, We invited people to send that kind of stuff to us before, too, 30 seconds or less. You know, for that, I think we should create a big list of themes for everybody. So stay in touch with us. If you want to ask me about it, just write to Kevin at risk-show.com, and I can send you instructions on how to send us a little bit of original music that's 30 seconds or less that is about the word risk or the idea of risk or a little sound collage on a themic thing that might go between one of the stories. Write to me at Kevin at risk show.com. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in trying now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the New York based storyteller, Danny Artiz. He told a story at a recent risk live show at the bell house in Brooklyn, where we are again, this very Wednesday. But before that, Speaking of the early days of the podcast, Jean LeBeck is someone who I think she was first on the podcast back in 2012. Someone I dearly love. One of my very first storytelling students when when I first started teaching storytelling, Jean was in one of my first classes. And she is just such a treat every damn time. Every damn time she gets on stage, it is such a treat. So here she is at a Recent Risk Live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn. This is Jean LeBec with a story we call Secrets and Lies.
4: So, the exact moment that my son left for college, my husband became a nudist. (laughs) And he wanted to spend all of our vacations at nudist resorts. Now, this didn't come exactly as a shock because Marcel loves being naked and he's a true bon vivant. He just jumps into experiences, embraces life. I don't love being naked. So... For me, this was really difficult. I mean, when I'm naked, all I see is, you know, rashes and 10 pounds overweight, and I just can't be alone with myself naked, never mind being at a resort with a lot of other naked people. So Marcel spent days trying to convince me to go to these nudist resorts with him. And he would say, oh, Jean, embrace your body and you'll feel the hot sun on your body and you'll jump naked into the ocean and you'll feel the waves on your body. And finally, finally, he wore me down and I said, I'll go, I'll go only under the condition that we keep this whole thing a secret. This whole nudist part of our lives is a secret from our entire family, because I can't, you know, oh, there's Aunt Jean, I wonder what she looks like naked. I mean, I couldn't have anybody think of me naked, especially my adult children. I mean, seriously, you know, hi, Mom, are, are you going off and being naked today? No, couldn't do that. So we never, when we went to these nudist resorts, We never left the name of the resort or the number of the resort, and we were very vague about where we were going. We'd say, oh, we're going to Florida. But some of these resorts were in very out-of-the-way places, and we did get many suspicious looks when we said, oh, you know, we're spending a week in Paw Paw, West Virginia. (laughs) You know, we called regularly, we did, and, and just checking in, we checked in with everyone, making sure everything was okay. And everyone had our cell numbers too, except that I always really had to be the one to call first because the thought of talking to anybody naked or... But you know, actually, I was never really totally naked because at these nudist resorts, I found this way, I would just cover myself in sarongs and I would say I was allergic to the sun. So it's July 19th, 2008, and we are at a nudist resort in Florida. I wake up to the sound of Marcel's cell phone ringing, and it's ringing, and it's ringing, and I'm thinking, who could be calling us? We called everybody last night. Everything was fine, except that the only, only person we didn't call was Marcel's mother, Berna. Now, Berna lives in New York City, but she spends summers in France and she was spending the summer at her home in France visiting with all her relatives and she would never ever be calling Marcel on his cell phone because she didn't believe in cell phones. She only called on our landline. I had this, you know, I had this love-annoying relationship with Brenna. It's not love-hate. It's love-annoying. And Brenna is barely five foot tall. She is a bundle of energy. And every morning, you know, she leaves her apartment on West 56th Street in New York with a big shopping bag, and she marches the city sidewalks, eyes down, searching for treasures. She finds them, too. She finds Gucci watches and gold bracelets and earrings, gold coins, bags of quarters, sometimes $100 bills. All of these presents actually get redistributed to us, like for birthday gifts, you know, (laughs) Christmas gifts. It's not bad. She also loves to play jokes, and she loves to play jokes on me. Like, the very first time I met her, the very first time I met her. Now, I'm nervous. I'm meeting Marcel's mother for the very first time. I want to make a good impression. I want her to really like me. So she invites me to dinner, and, you know, I'm all dressed up, and she ushers me to the chair by the table, and I sit down, and this huge... Farting noise just explodes because she had put a whoopee cushion on my chair. (laughs) She thought it was hysterical. She laughed all night. (laughs) I think the reason that she wanted me to marry Marcel was because of Amy. When I met Marcel, I was a single mom. I had um, an eight-year-old little girl, and uh, Berna fell instantly in love with her and. One day, she took Amy shopping. She let Amy pick out her own winter coat. And Amy was so damn proud, coming home with that coat, red wool with black velvet. There was a Christmas, though. This is the last annoying thing there is. There was a Christmas where she gave everybody envelopes with money, and my envelope had these tiny black crotchless panties, and I had no... (laughs) You know, I wondered, well, did you find this on the street? Is this, you know, where, you know. The phone is ringing again, but this time, this time Marcel grabs it. And phone to ear, he leaves the bedroom. I follow him. He pulls open the sliding glass door that goes to the balcony, and he sits down on this white bench, and I sit next to him. He's not saying a word. He's just staring straight ahead, listening, and I go, What? Grabs my hand. He says, thank you. I understand. And then he looks at me, and he says, Jean, that was the American embassy in Paris, They've been trying to find me for five days. Berna was killed five days ago in some freak accident in France, and they have not been able to get in touch with me because nobody in France has my cell number. I hear what he's saying, and I can't wrap my mind around this. Five days, five days. No one in our family gets killed. Five days, Bernadette for five days, and we didn't know. While well, we ate fancy dinners and drank wine, and, and I had a, a manicure. The sun is coming up. The resort is waking up. I can hear people laughing and talking on their way to breakfast. There are people splashing in the pool. We sit staring at each other, we're paralyzed. And we go into the room. We begin silently and frantically packing And I want Marcel to yell at me I want him to say, damn you You made me keep this whole nudist thing a secret They couldn't find us for five days Because they didn't have my goddamn cell number But he didn't He didn't say anything We can't fly directly to France We have to go home to Brooklyn first There are just so many arrangements to make So many, and we get to Brooklyn. My son Jean-Claude and his fiancée, Ali, are there, and they move gently around us. They make us food. Ali's brought some flowers, and we listen to five days of tearful messages from Marcel's aunts and cousins. Marcel, Marcel, where are you? Where are you? Call us back. Call us back. Your mother, your mother... Marcel speaks to his cousin Eve, and cousin Eve says, "We have to have Berna's funeral like really like now, like soon, because, according to French law, you have to bury somebody or cremate them, you know, seven days after they die, and five days has already passed. We can't get a flight out. And finally. Finally, Marcel just spends hours on the phone with Eve dictating his mother's eulogy, knowing that Eve will speak for him since he won't be able to be there. It's finally the day that we're leaving for France. The cab is waiting outside and Marcel comes out of the bedroom. He looks really beautiful. He's wearing this dark gray suit and this light blue shirt and a light gray tie and Polished shoes, and I go, babe. Oh my goodness, we have such a long flight. It's seven hours, and then it's going to be another four-hour train trip. You're going to be so uncomfortable dressed like that. And Marcel said, "Yeah, but while we're flying over the Atlantic Ocean, my mom is having her funeral, and I, I just need to be part of it in some way." And he picked up the suitcases. And we left. In France, we walk directly into Bernice's kitchen, and it feels like she is still there, even though she's not there. I feel her there. I walk over to the stove, her soup pot is on the stove, her crepe pan. And I know, I know, she's making lunch. It's July 14th. It's Bastille Day. She must have needed something. And the markets close early on Bastille Day. So she grabbed her blue sweater and her red shopping basket and she ran to the market. And on her way home, walking up that long, narrow sidewalk, winding, narrow sidewalk of the village, A car driving way too fast, pulling very heavy farm machinery that is swinging wildly back and forth, back and forth. The machinery detaches from the car, swinging onto the sidewalk, killing Berna instantly, 500 feet from her home. If, If she had walked a little slower if she had stayed at that market gossiping longer with her friends, if, if she had walked faster, if, if she heard that man who stopped for the red light, who saw our Berna in her blue sweater pulling that red basket, and he saw the car driving too fast, and he saw the machinery wildly going back and forth, and he knew, and he pressed on his horn, and he shouted, all right, all right, stop! And Marcel and I, we grabbed a bottle of wine, and we sat on the steps, And for the first time, we finally, we finally cried. And Marcel said to me, you know, Bernadette, thought she was coming back. She thought she was coming back from the market. She was just making lunch. All we really have is right now. And I just said, I'm gonna be apologizing to you always, for keeping this nudist thing a secret because it seems so damn ridiculous now. And Marcel said, hey, I could have called France too, and you know what, we're having her funeral right now. And we stayed on those stoops, crying and drinking wine and telling Berna stories. And in the morning, Marcel said, look, babe, I've been thinking. We don't really, really, really have to go to nudist resorts. Really, really, I said. Really. We really, we could go to clothing optional ones. <laughs> and I said, really? Well, I've been thinking, and really, really? I think it's time for me to take off my sarong, feel the sun on my naked body, and dive into that ocean naked. Thank you.
2: Get out of your clothes and
4: get into the hot tub or get the hell out! Yeah, everybody into the jacuzzi. Do you always
3: dress that way?
4: Not to worry. Everyone's equipped with this sort of clothes from birth.
3: Come on, Nick, I dance naked all the time.
2: You don't feel naked?
0: I am naked. But I like naked. Naked's good. I want to look good naked! We feel that nudism eliminates tension, brings forth complete relaxation which enables man to find his true
1: values. The human body is not obscene. Don't you worry about those dope smokers and nudists down below there? No.
0: First time I was aware of being called a faggot was in sixth grade. Um, kid named Jeff yelled it across the quad, and you know he could have been talking to anybody, but he wasn't. Um, and you know, in the following years, more often than being called names, uh, I would actually get the question, "Are you gay?" And the thing was that twelve-year-old Danny was very gay. <laughs> um, I had come out to both of my parents by the end of middle school, I had started telling my best friends, and before high school I went to my first Pride in San Francisco with Ellen DeGeneres as the Grand Marshal. Um, Yeah, And then uh, what tends to happen after middle school is I started my freshman year of high school where you were then back at the bottom. Except that I had a leg up because I was a member of my school's tall flag team. If you're not familiar with the tall flag team, that is um, the group of students who toss and spin flags during the halftime shows at football games with the marching band. Um, Now, socially speaking, as the marching band is to the entire school, the tall flag team is to the marching band. so, So I really should have been invisible Except that I was one of the first two guys ever to be on that tall flag team. And so rather than rendering me invisible, it actually put a big neon pink target on my back. Now, those girls that were on this team with me, those sophomores and juniors and senior girls who were anything but cool, I happen to know better. Because if there was a target on my back, they had that back. And they took out, uh, looked out for me and took care of me at school and would walk with me from class to class just in case there were any bullies to encounter. Now, I, of course, did not think of them as bullies at the time because, to me, bullying was something physical. Bullying was getting shoved in a locker. It was having something thrown at you. And so when I would pass these bigger, older boys, and it was always bigger, older boys and they would call names or more often ask those questions. I just thought that they were not nice people. There were times that I had to walk without any of my teammates, of course, and so I developed strategies for doing so. If there were one or two guys, and I was passing by, and they would ask, are you gay? I learned that I could say, yes, and then while they were so dazed by the affirmative response, I could just dart away and get to class. (laughs) If it was a larger group, then I would take an alternate route, maybe going around a building, even it meant that I would be late for class. And if it was too large a group and there was no alternate route, I would just power on by, eyes down, pretending I couldn't see them, couldn't hear them, pretending they did not exist. By junior year of high school, through passage of time, there were just fewer, bigger, older boys, which is why I was so caught off guard when I encountered the biggest bully yet in my US history class that year. And my usual tactics of avoiding eye contact and pretending I couldn't hear him were completely ineffective, because he taught the class. Mr. Covington was, by all accounts, a cool teacher. Uh, His class was known as an easy A class, there was a very low workload, and when it was time for us to learn about the 60s, we watched Austin Powers movies. (laughs) Basically, he gave me and my best friend in the class, Amy, who was also on the flag team with me, a new reason to roll our eyes at him every single day. Now, he didn't call me names, but Mr. Covington seemed to take a particular joy in calling attention to the fact that I was gay every chance he got. When we talked about gays in the military one day, he specifically referenced your people while looking right at me. And this was in Orange County, California, which is a conservative stronghold of the state. And uh, a few years before Prop 8, there was Proposition 22, uh, which voting yes would mean we were amending the language of our Constitution to clarify that marriage was between one man and one woman. And I never thought of our town as a particularly political place, but I remember that that season, on my walk home from school, almost every single house had a yes on 22 sign in the front yard. And there were a few that had no signs but there definitely were not any that had a no on 22 sign. So it didn't bother me that we had a debate about gay marriage in class. It was history in the making. And it didn't bother me that I was assigned to be on the opposing side because I can understand the value of looking at an issue from a perspective other than your own. What bothered me was the reason that he assigned that to me. Because it'd be fun. He smirked. It wasn't until a little bit after a discussion we had in class about the Center for Disease Control's ban on gay men, or specifically men who had sex with men donating blood, that my friend Amy told me that after class, he had approached her and inquired as to whether or not the ban affected me. In effect, asking whether or not I was sexually active. And that was too much. So I made an appointment with the dean of students to talk about what had been going on. It didn't even occur to me to involve my parents for a couple reasons. One, I was a mature, independent young man and I didn't want them to think that I couldn't handle myself, even though I know they totally would have had my side. But two, I didn't want to be weak. I mean, think about the captain of the football team needing his mom's help to deal with an issue he was having with a teacher. Now think of a five foot seven, skinny little boy wearing nail polish and an array of colors not normally seen outside of the Crayola factory, (laughs) calling in his mommy to help fight a battle with one of his teachers. More so than not wanting to be weak, I didn't want to be perceived as weak. So I mustered up all of my nerve and my courage and I went in and I sat down with the Dean of Students and I told her what had been going on in this class, what had been said, the things he'd been doing. And when I finished, she asked me a question. Did you ever tell him to stop? No. Um, I, the 16-year-old boy who was barely legally allowed to operate a motor vehicle, had not told my teacher, who was presumably twice my age and who had been charged with the general health, safety, well-being, and education of roomfuls of teenager at a time, to stop calling attention to the fact that I was gay in front of my entire class every chance he got. But all I told her was no. And she said that because of that, there was nothing the school could do. If I was worried about feeling weak before, asking for help only to receive the message that I hadn't done enough to merit it made me feel completely powerless. Now, I don't want you to get the impression that high school was hell and that this was the most miserable year. Because my junior year of high school, I auditioned and got the lead in a school play. I ran for and won an office on our student government. And perhaps most importantly, I performed a Britney Spears dance routine in full flesh tone <laughs> bodysuit and blonde wig that was all anyone could talk about for weeks. Okay. Okay. But in his class, I shut down. I stopped raising my hand, I stopped participating, I avoided eye contact in hopes that he would pretend I didn't exist. There are a lot of things I don't know. I don't know if he was ever told about this conversation with the Dean of Students, I don't know if any record whatsoever exists of this conversation. I don't know if his problem with me was personal or if it was just with having a flamboyant little gay boy in his class. But what I really don't know is why at the end of the school year, I asked him to sign my yearbook like I did the rest of my teachers. He wrote, Danny, you and I are very much alike. What I do know is that if he thought that, if he thought that I would ever treat anybody the way he had treated me, if he thought that I was anything like him, then he had no idea who I was.
1: Feel a change in everything. And as the surface breaks, reflections fade, but in some ways they remain the same. And as my mind begins to spread its wings, there's no stopping curiosity. I wanna turn the whole thing upside down. I'll find the thing. They say just can't be fair. I'll share this love I find with everyone. We'll sing and dance to mother nature songs. I don't want this feeling to go away.
2: This is a risk. This is uh, Jack Johnson behind me now, and we just heard from Danny Artis. You can find him on Twitter at Dearest Alien and before danny we heard an interstitial by our episode editor jeff Barr. that's what i was talking about earlier jeff took some music by the band blur and then just scrounged around and found some audio clips of people talking about being naked in the nude in the buff from all sorts of places and made a little interstitial out of it if you are an audio buff if you like editing stuff and, I don't know, maybe you're in school even for radio, whatever it might be, we're looking for people to submit little creative interstitials like that, 30 seconds or less. Write to me at Kevin at KevinAtRisk-Show.com and I'll send you some themes that you might want to play with. Now let me say a few words about Stamps.com. Folks, Stamps.com brings you all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Stamps.com makes it easy. They'll send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage stamps.com will even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs no need to lease an expensive postage meter we use stamps.com at risk and the story studio and we love it and right now you can enjoy the stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and the digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk that stamps.com enter risk stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Now our final story on this week's episode comes to us from our show that we recently did in Toronto. We did a fabulous, fabulous show In Toronto yet again And Sarah Long Hendershot Came to the show to tell a story Holy cow She is so good She is in the band The Jane Mutiny You can look them up on Facebook The Jane Mutiny And she is one hell of a singer as well So here she is now This is Sarah Long Hendershot At the Risk Live show in Toronto With a story we call The Carnival
1: Please don't go away. Please don't go away.
5: Moving is the worst. Moving is one of those occasional necessities in life that depletes you in just about every possible way. Even when it's a good move, it's still uprooting your life like that is always a risk. And I was moving as a single mom with a two-year-old. And I hadn't figured out how to single parent the way that I wanted to in Boston where I was living. And so I decided to take a couple years off and go to the small town in upstate New York where my parents lived. And I had rented the top half of a lovely little painted lady, Queen Anne Victorian, and I had spent the entire day hauling boxes from my rusted Ford Escort and the little U-Haul trailer I was pulling behind it up the long narrow stairway to our adorable new apartment. I was on the last load... I had a laundry basket full of toys on one hip and my very tired two-year-old son, Shane, on my other hip. And I paused for a minute outside the house and I looked at the porch stairs and I thought, can I really go up these stairs one more time? And I happened to look around and I caught up in the second floor window of the house next door the most angry, twisted, furious, frightening face just glaring down at me. And if I had not been forewarned about this person, I think I would have peed myself. (laughs) But earlier that day, the neighbors on the other side had come over to introduce themselves. And about 30 seconds into the conversation with them, the wife had leaned over and like half whispered as if he could hear from two doors down, have you met old Bill? And the husband said, do yourself a favor. Keep clear. And the wife said, he's the town crank. And the guy said, you'll see. And we did see. We were moving in in spring, and all through that spring and summer, we saw Bill being Bill. Bill woe to the person who walked their dog past his house and the dog peed on his lawn or you know the guy that checked the meter made too much noise or the guy that handled his garbage cans was too rough every interaction with other people was anger 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 but we never really interacted with him his whole house was kind of clamped down he never opened his windows he never opened his doors What the neighbors didn't know when they told me about Bill was that after a very chaotic and dysfunctional childhood, I found myself at age 28 really not very good at connecting with people in any real kind of way. And I was glad Bill was like he was. And I wished all the neighbors were like Bill so that I would never have to interact with them. But not so much Shane. My son Shane was not having a chaotic and dysfunctional childhood. He was having a very positive childhood. And he, by the time we'd been there for six months or so, he was two and a half, he started to notice Bill and make little overtures towards him. And it was amazing to watch from somebody who didn't know how to do that. It was amazing to watch this kid. So he started out by, we would be playing in the front yard and he'd be looking at Bill's house. And if he saw him in the window, he'd wave to him. And Bill would, like, slam his curtains shut if he ever got caught watching. And then later on in the fall, we'd be outside raking the leaves. And Shane would kind of just walk over until he was in front of Bill's house. And he'd be kicking the leaves over to our yard. Or he'd pick up a few leaves in his hands and come put them in our pile. And then winter and the snow came and Shane had his own little toy shovel and I'd be shoveling the walk and he'd be, you know, throwing a couple of snowflakes. I'd look up and he'd be over trying to shovel Bill's front walk. Shortly after that, we were making muffins and Shane said, I want to take a muffin to Bill. And I said, All right, okay, if that's what you want to do, we'll, we'll do that. Here, put it on this plate, and we'll take it over. So this was his deal. So I stood on the sidewalk, <laughs> and I watched. And this little kid, he's not even three yet, and he's got it on the plate. He's trying to balance it and catch it every once in a while. And he gets up, he goes up the like three front stairs, and he reaches up to the doorbell, and he rings it. And Bill comes and answers the door. And I'm watching their interaction. They chat for a minute. And I was happy to see that Bill took the muffin. So Shane comes back and he's all excited. He says, Bill says, we can come back for the plate tomorrow. And can we come in for tea? And I was like, oh, okay, sure, we'll do it. Well, it's fine, <laughs> I don't want to hold my kid back, all right? So <laughs> the next day, We go over in the morning, knock on the door. Bill answers instantly. We walk in. His house is immaculate. It's not normal immaculate. It's like OCD immaculate. And there's not a lot of stuff. It's very spare. But not spare because he doesn't have any money. It's spare because he just doesn't want to have a lot of stuff in his house. He smells like shaving cream. And I notice a little piece of tissue with a circle of blood (laughs) on his neck. So obviously he'd cleaned up for company. And we uh, we he leads us into the kitchen and he's got a little four mica top table there with aluminum chairs and uh, we sit down and I have some awkward small talk with him because I'm bad at small talk and he's bad at small talk. Shane has brought two cars and he's driving them around the table, you know <laughs> And Bill just abandons trying to have small talk with me and he picks up his spoon and he puts it down in front of Shane's car. And he says, you're going to have to turn around. There's been an accident here. (laughs) A log truck has spilled its load. And that was it for Shane. Really, from that moment on, they were the best of friends. And over the next several months... We spent quite a bit of time with him. I mean, honestly, we kind of folded our lives together. Shane and I would have dinner, and I would make some extra. I would take it over to him, and sometimes he would do the same for us. I would help him if he had errands that he needed to run and so on. And Shane was very, very excited to be friends with Bill. He didn't want to talk about himself very much. But I did find out that he was a widower. His wife had been dead for 17 years. And he had two daughters who lived right there in town, like literally a few blocks away, that wanted nothing to do with him. And I tried to talk to him about, yeah, what's up with, you know, and he would just stiffen up. And I could tell from his body language that he didn't want to go there. So we never, I never found out what it was. The problem I started to have was that I never intended to leave the city permanently. I knew eventually I was going to go back. I'm a professional musician. I couldn't really, you know, make a living in Watertown, New York as a musician. I decided it was about time to tell Bill that I was thinking that in the next few months we would be leaving. I went to tell him, Shane was asleep, and I told the neighbors downstairs that I was going next door. He took it pretty hard. I mean, he clammed up, but he just kind of sat there and stared. And I realized that he was staring at the one piece of art that he had on his wall. And that was one of those free drugstore calendars that he had tacked to the wall over the kitchen table, and hanging next to it was a black marker on a piece of twine. And Bill had a routine Every night after he ate his dinner, he would wash his dishes, dry them, put them away, go put on his pajamas, and come back out and make a perfect black X over that day. And I was looking at the whole month leading up to the day I was sitting there, and I saw all those X'd out days. And very neatly tucked into the corner of the shelf underneath was a stack of about 12 calendars from prior years. After that, I got a call from Bill. I'd been gone all day long, and I got home. There was a message on voicemail from him on the answering machine. It said, can you come and get me? I'm at the emergency room. I've been here all day. So I jump in the car. I go over to the emergency room, and there he is. He's in his pajamas. He's been there for seven hours he said, I wasn't feeling well this morning so I called an ambulance and I didn't have, I had my pajamas on so I don't have my wallet and I couldn't pay a cabbie and I called my daughter but she never showed and I didn't know how to get home so I gave him a ride home. The second time that happened, this young doctor came over to me and he said, listen, I want to talk to you. I know Bill doesn't have any family to speak of but I know that he's fond of you and I want you to know that I think that he is mismanaging his diabetes on purpose for attention. I gave the doctor my number, and I said, you know what, if there's anything I can do, let me know. All I can do is encourage him to be healthy and talk to him and try to keep an eye on him. And so that's what I did. A little bit after that, Bill called me up one night again. Shane was asleep, and he said, come over, I've got to talk to you. So I went over. And he says, I've been thinking. I could move to Boston with you. It sounded like an outlandish idea to me, but I hadn't seen him that happy in a long time, and I didn't want to just shoot him down. So I said to him, you're going to sell your house because you can't just leave it empty. You'll have to find all new doctors and get your prescriptions switched over. And he knew very quickly that it just wasn't going to happen. He was about 78 years old, and he'd lived in Watertown his whole life. He wasn't going to pick up and move to Boston. A couple days later, he called me again. And I went back, and this time he was old Bill. He was angry, He was mean. He said to me, you don't belong here. You need to get out of this town. You're 29 years old, and you're not getting any younger, and you got nothing going on. I knew he was grieving. I didn't want to engage him, so I just said, all right, Bill, thanks for letting me know how you feel. Good night. The next morning, Shane woke up, and he really wanted to go see Bill. I didn't really want to go see Bill. But he really wanted to see Bill. And he was at this stage in his development where he would say your name over and over again until you acknowledged him. I don't know if any of you know any toddlers. So if I was talking to somebody and he had something important to say or if I was on the phone, it was like, mom, 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 mom. So all morning he's like, Bill, I want to see Bill. We have to go see Bill. So if I was like, okay, fine, we'll go see Bill. Right After breakfast we'll clean up We'll go to see Bill We walk downstairs and out the front door And it's autumn now And it's very, very windy And the wind is blowing my hair all over the place And Shane's so excited He just runs across the yard And right up Bill's back stairs And into his back door And I thought, that's weird Because Bill never leaves his doors open And then I hear loud music Coming out of Bill's house And all his windows are open. I'm like, okay, he never opens his windows. He never listens to loud music. This is making me really uncomfortable. So I run up the stairs, and I have my hand on the doorknob, and I hear, Bill, 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 Bill. And I open the door, and there is my three-year-old on all fours with his face inches away from Bill's purple mottled Face. Bill was a big man and he was, had fallen in between the living room and the kitchen and he took up almost the whole length of the room. I saw that his mouth was wide open and his eyes looked like they were looking up at his glasses which had flown onto his forehead when he had fallen over like a felled tree. And there's shame. Shane. Bill's arms were all splotched with lividity, which is what happens when you've been dead for a few hours. And the wind was blowing his curtains. And Roger Miller, King of the Road, was like at volume 10, like echoing through the whole room. And it was one of the most surreal moments of my life, and I felt my stomach just clench up like a fist. And I kind of panicked. I ran over to Shane, and I picked him up, And I said, Bill's sleeping, don't wake him up. We gotta get out of here. So (laughs) I had to undo that later. (laughs) Those of you who don't have experience with children, we never equate death and sleep. Really a bad idea. So anyway, (laughs) you're going to sleep now, honey. I took him over to the next door neighbor I came back over I turned off the music I called an ambulance and he had his um, two daughters phone numbers right there next to the phone and I called the first one there was no answer called the second one and a woman answered right away and I said this is your father's neighbor and your father's passed away And I pictured her showing up, like, after he was on a gurney under a sheet. But she got there before the ambulance did, like, literally within two minutes. You know, now she shows up. She goes rushing over to him and starts trying to pry the wedding ring off his finger. After the ambulance came and they drove him away, I stood on the sidewalk next to her, watching it go, and she turned to me and she said, "'Don't think you're going to get anything.'" So, Shane and I dealt with Bill's death in very different ways. Shane had a lot of questions, questions that were difficult to answer, and as he got older, the questions got a little more complicated, and I tried to cobble something together for him, but by the time he was six years old, he had a full-fledged existential crisis, I was driving around, we were doing a whole bunch of errands, it was raining out, we had to grab some lunch real quick before we went on to the next thing, and we stopped at a gas station and grabbed a couple sandwiches, and we sat in the car to eat, and the rain's coming down the windshield, and uh, I take a bite of my tuna sandwich, don't get tuna at a gas station. (laughs) I take a bite of my tuna sandwich and I say, oh, this tastes really not so great, I hope I don't get food poisoning. And Shane instantly lunges across the seat, grabs the tuna sandwich out of my hand and takes a giant bite of it. And I said, why did you do that? And he said, if you die, I want to die. And furthermore, (laughs) why are we even here if we're gonna die? What's the point? And I thought, all right, i got to give this kid something. And you know what? I didn't have heaven to give him. To me, I'm sorry. Heaven is a cop-out. I don't believe in it, and I wasn't going to lie to my kid. So what I said to him, I took his beautiful little face in my hands, and I said, do you not go to the carnival because you have to go home at the end of the day? And he kind of stared at me. And he stopped asking questions about death from that moment on. He did. (laughs) Me, in the months after Bill's death, I was filled with guilt and self-recrimination because that doctor had called me up after Bill died and said, he took a fatal dose of insulin. And I thought, why, why did you do that to that man? He had his ordered life and you came in and you interjected yourself and you brought him to the point where he'd kill himself. And the more I thought about it, I thought, you know what, that is really arrogant to think that you can make that kind of decision for another cognizant adult human being. Bill was the one who opened the door. He opened the door to a child. He let some love in his life. He spent the last six months of his life or so probably happier than he had ever been. You've got to go through life detaching yourself from outcomes. That's what I finally figured out. You have to be a decent human being. You can give compassion and companionship and care to the people who are right in front of your face. And whatever happens after that, it happens. We are not in control of it. And it took several more years for me to fully realize the extent of the healing that raising my son was for me because I was able to relive the parent-child dynamic in a way that was right and healthy and nurturing. And I came out of it like, like a kid that had been raised right. And my son is grown now, and I still think about all the lessons that I learned from him. But I really, truly, I think the number one lesson that I learned was Go to the carnival. Go to the carnival. Thank you.
2: That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Sarah Longhendershot and her band The Jane Mutiny behind me now. And before that (laughs) was Sarah Longhendershot at the Risk Live show in Toronto. You can look up The Jane Mutiny on Facebook at The Jane Mutiny. And don't forget to look up omgs.com. OMGS.com is a sex research website that conducted the first-ever scientific studies of what feels good for women and why, and turned the findings into fun, honest videos. OMGS.com is for women, men, and couples to get more understanding, more pleasure, and tools to make a great thing even better. Risk listeners get a discount when you go to omgs.com/risk. It's a one-time payment of $35 for permanent access to the first season of 62 videos plus interactive touchable simulations. That's at omgs.com/risk. Okay, now I'm going to let you know where Risk is appearing next on August 30th. We are at the Bell House in Brooklyn. On September 9th, we are in Salt Lake City, Utah. And on September 16th, we're back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. On September 26, we're doing a show at the Bell House with body storytelling from San Francisco. Our, our good friend Dixie De La Tour will be co hosting the show with me. So it'll be a risk slash body storytelling show on September 26 at the Bell House in Brooklyn. On November 3rd, we're in Baltimore. We're back in Baltimore on November 3rd. The theme is obsession. On November 9th, we're back in Chicago. The theme is Revealing. On November 10th, it's Madison, Wisconsin. November 10th in Madison, the theme is Huge. And November 11th, we're in Detroit at the Magic Bag. The theme that night is Surprise. On December 2nd, we're in Phoenix, Arizona, December 2nd, we're in Phoenix, the theme is jaw-dropping. Now, for all of those shows that I just listed, everything after Salt Lake City, we are still taking pitches. So if you go to risk-show.com slash submissions, there's a video there, there's an audio lecture you can listen to, there's all sorts of helpful tips for you or for your friends on how to pitch us and how to start preparing a story. So that's all at risk-show.com submissions. We want your pitches. And if you're interested in training on storytelling, look us up at thestorystudio.org. We have online classes you can take. We have one-on-one training that I do with folks over Skype. We do corporate workshops anywhere in the world. And you can find all that at thestorystudio.org. dot org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.